Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm lead pastor here. I really wish we had music that could capture how excited we are about Christmas today. Today we're kicking off a new series called Good Tidings. And I think this is the perfect series that really captures kind of the, where we are as a moment, as a culture. Um, and to, to, to kind of start it off, I'm going to give you a little bit of a reminder of Christmas. Um, so here is this famous nativity, nativity scene. Um, here's uh, clearly what it looked like, chubby white people um, and baby Jesus. That was clearly what was going down that day. Um, actually not, but so I kind of have a love-hate relationship. I've got to be really honest with nativity scenes, okay? This came from my house, all right? So um, I'm like, we have them in my house, and I even allow the chubby white people to be in my house. Um, my mother-in-law, who's probably listening right now, will tell you that one of the things that I used to do that annoyed her um, when I first started dating my wife and we would go over there for Christmas um, and I would kind of see the nativity scene and I was like, I just, this is not accurate. And so I had this like side of me that when I would leave, I would always hide the wise men um, and so that they weren't at the nativity scene because it always bothers me that the wise men are at the nativity scene because actually historically the wise men probably didn't come for another two years potentially. Um, and so the actual Christmas night where it's like, oh, there's the shepherds and, you know, Mary looks like she just didn't give birth to a baby and, you know, and like there's wise men there and there's only three of them. It just, it, it annoyed me. And so she began to not like me for a while because she would eventually realize it was me. She would call me, Chris, where are my wise men? I'm like, they're still traveling. They're not there yet. And I'm like, I'll come in a couple years, and I'll return them to the nativity scene because then it'll be accurate. Um, and so I do have this challenge with the nativity scene. And I think part of it is because the challenge with the nativity scene is that it oversimplifies and, and, and kind of one-dimensionally flattens the storyline of Christmas. It turns it into this little romantic, naive nativity scene where all the world was perfect, great, and grand, and we can cause us unintentionally to have a disconnect from the Christmas story and our story. That it becomes the holiday, it becomes a thing that we look forward to, and, and that this blends into the background with the other chubby white guy who breaks into your house on Christmas Eve that you don't seem to be bothered by. Um, it kind of merges in with the lights on the tree and the food and the celebrations, and all of that becomes Christmas. And Christmas loses the teeth that it was meant to have. Christmas loses the power that it was meant to have. Not just in the profound sense, but in the very practical sense, which is why in the course of this month, I want to journey through Christmas with the lens of the first story and how it impacts our story. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll get a little bit more practical and, and mental, emotional health and relationships and all those things that really kind of intersect this Christmas in a unique way. But I want to start with not this moment, as profound as this moment is. I actually want to start with a moment that happens about uh, 70 years after this moment. Because it's in that moment that I actually think we get a better picture, an easier picture of the Christmas story and it's so what. And so I want to take you on a bit of a historical journey. And if you're um, not new to Encounter Church, you're not surprised by that. Um, if you are new to Encounter Church, then you're going to learn very quickly. I believe that the Bible 
is, is a book that is alive, that is meant to engage our heart, mind, body, and soul. It is not one that we check our brain at the door when we engage. It is not something that is disconnected from history. A book that profound with that much implication and that much explicit kind of call to change our lives um, should be rooted in reality. And so I don't do magical thinking. I don't kind of just assume we're going to believe this and we kind of swallow the Kool-Aid. This is a book that we're meant to wrestle with as it wrestles with us. And so that's why oftentimes you're going to see me walk through passages because my goal is that this becomes four-dimensional, that you understand it in space and in time, and you see how that moment then intersects with our moment today. And so that's why I want to take you to 66 AD, that exciting year that none of us have ever thought about before. In 66 AD, there is a group of people on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, and they are fed up with the Roman Empire's occupation. They're determined that this is going to be the year that they finally overthrow their Roman oppressors. And in a kind of a stake of luck and tenacity, they managed to fight off a Roman army about the size of 20,000 people. It's a big deal. They feel emboldened. They feel like they've finally done it. And that this small little Jewish group of people think that they finally set into motion the revolution that's going to free them from the great Roman oppressors that they have. But what they've really done is nothing more than this. They're a tiny little prairie dog that has somehow managed to startle the great eagle for a second. But that eagle will circle back around, and it does four years later. Nero, who was the emperor then, who's bothered by the way that this rebellious group has responded and wanting to make a point because if you're going to rule an empire, one of the things that you can't allow happen, you can't allow a group of people to rebel against you and leave it unpunished because that's just going to foster other people rebelling. And your empire is predicated on your power being present and stopping rebels from rising up. And so what do you do? You bring the heat. And so Nero dispatches a man named Vespucian who arrives into Jerusalem and begins a siege. Now, a siege, we have to understand, was rooted in kind of ancient warfare, which was that most great cities in that day had walls surrounded them. That was how you protected the city. You had phenomenally great walls. And that the only access point that you really had in those walls were the gates that you guarded night and day. So the Roman troops arrive at the wall of Jerusalem, and they begin to siege, which you cut off, you stop people from getting out, and by surrounding it, what happens is there is no Grubhub, there is no Instacart, food is not coming into the city. So there's a limited water supply, there's a limited food supply, and if you siege the city long enough, people begin to get hungry. So that was a great plan. Let's starve them to death. Now, Vespucian was actually quite clever. Um, as it got closer and closer to this fateful moment, he would allow pilgrims into the city because Jerusalem was a place religious people traveled to a couple times of the year. And so he would allow them to go into the city for religious festivals, but then he wouldn't allow them to come out because he recognized the more people I can shove into that city, the hungrier, the more hungry they're going to get. And so that's exactly what starts to happen. And then in a fate of luck, what appears to be, wow, the tide is turning. 
Nero passes away and Vespucian is wrapped, uh, pulled back to Rome and Vespucian is actually given the Roman emperorship. And he dispatches another general, his son, Titus, who shows up at the gates of Jerusalem, completely committed to ending this thing. And he gets it so incredibly dark inside of Rome, I mean, inside of Jerusalem with the Roman army surrounding him, that uh, there's a, a guy traveling with him. This is actually a picture of that moment. It's actual, like, Instagram from him. Um, that, like, it gets so dark with the forces wrapping around it that people begin to starve. And um, Josephus, who's a, a historian traveling with Titus, writes a very detailed account of what he's seeing through this siege and through the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He comments how food gets so scarce that people take to eating grass. Then they take to eating the leather on their shoes and their shields. And then he has a devastating account of a mom um, eating her child. Because that's how dark it gets inside of that city. There is no food. There's hardly any, any water. And on top of that, Political factions are tearing the people apart internally because there's a group of people who are pro-Roman who are like, why are we doing this? It's killing us. It's destroying us. And so internally, they're being ripped apart and they're dying. And any people attempting to escape are crucified. And Josephus comments on how about 500 people are crucified a day in this period of time. So just picture traveling into Jerusalem, body after body after body staked on a cross. Why? Because it's all about fear and it's all about control and you want to make the point to your empire that if you mess with us, this is what happens. This is the fall of Jerusalem. And eventually the gates, as this picture captures, are breached. And that's when devastation actually really comes into play because they were at that point so angry at the Jewish people who had forced them as a Roman army to be outside their gates for that long that they wanted personally to bring vengeance and wrath. So they're going in, destroying everything. Titus decides that not a single wall or building should be left standing in Jerusalem. And he's so successful that Josephus will later write that if you had been a traveler passing through that area, completely unaware that there had once been a great city there, you wouldn't have even noticed it. Because he destroys everything. He arrives and some of his men have thrown fire sticks into one of the most essential, kind of most important parts of Jerusalem, which is the temple. And the temple is now on fire. But Titus noticed while the temple's burning that the temple was actually filled with gold. And so they're trying to burn a temple while simultaneously trying to pillage the temple. And remove all of the valuable artifacts because there was gold everywhere inside of the temple. And the entire city of Jerusalem is on fire and is being destroyed. They'll bring back people to Rome. And this actually exists in the Roman Forum today if you ever travel to Rome. It's called the Arch of Titus. And it's there to commemorate and celebrate Titus returning to Rome with all of the prisoners attached in, in the company, and all of the artifacts. Actually, inside is there is a scene from the moment where they're carrying all of these different golden artifacts from inside of the temple. Now, it's hard to get a scale of the, the Arch of Titus, so this helps you. 
Um, these guys are about seven feet tall in real life. Okay? And they're right there. This is a massive arch. Why? Because while many of us are not aware of 70 A.D. and the fall, this was a big deal. This was a commemoration for the whole Roman Empire to know that if you mess with us, this is what happens to you. Because we're the Roman Empire. We have the power. We have the control. And it's this moment in this backdrop that we see how profound this moment actually is. Because if you've ever heard of the Western Wall, the Western Wall was the only piece of that siege in Jerusalem that did not get destroyed. So the Western Wall today is still one of the most important um, pieces of the Jewish faith. In fact, if you travel to Israel today, there are going to be people praying along the Western Wall every single day because it's the only thing still standing from almost 2,000 years ago. So this moment that's not very big on our radars was a significant historical moment that's still present in its artifacts today, and it's still influencing and impacting a group of people today in Israel. Because this was a big deal. This was an existential crisis. This was a moment that made people stop and wonder if you were Jewish and you were a Christian, which at that time was synonymous with each other if you were in Israel. You wondered if there was any hope. You wondered if there was any chance, like the world was over for you. And that, that sentiment, that concern is still there today because this is the only thing still standing. And yet it's in that backdrop, all that history that I just gave you, that John writes his biographical account of the life of Jesus. It's in all of that that John writes what we call the book of John. So John was the youngest of the 12 disciples, um, significantly younger. And because of that, statistically, he had the greatest chance of living the longest, which he did. And most of John's writings actually don't happen in the early years of Christianity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke get written right after Jesus' resurrection, historically speaking. And John gets towards the end of his life, and he begins to realize that there are some things about Jesus that the world still doesn't know. He's, still the, he's the last remaining apostle, and so he has a significant voice and influence. So he writes five different books in the later years of his life. So almost a fifth of the New Testament letters are written by the youngest disciple named John. And it's after the fall of Jerusalem, in the midst of that existential crisis, that John writes his biographical account because everyone connected to the Jewish faith is wondering, is this thing over? The temple is gone. All of the artifacts that were significant to the Jewish faith had disappeared. They're not there anymore. And they're wondering, is there any hope? Because it looks like all has been lost. The Roman Empire is won. They have the power and the control. And he wants them to understand something. And so John writes in his opening chapter, the opening portion of his letter, a different perspective of the Christmas story. Whereas uh, Matthew and Luke give a very intentional historical research picture with chronologies and interviews and all of those details, um, 
John comes along and says, I don't, I don't know if people understand the so what. They, Matthew and Luke gave us the very clear what of Christmas. But I don't know if anyone's given the so what of Christmas. And so he writes in the beginning of his letter, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? It's, it's, John 1 reads vastly different than all the opening chapters of the first three gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And a couple verses in, he writes the following sentence and statements. There's two sentences I just want us to focus on today. Because I wanted to give us a lot of the history, what was in people's hearts and minds when they read this sentence for the first time. For us to understand that the so what of Christmas is so much stronger than we realize. He says this, in him, speaking of Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then this grand philosophical opening to his gospel account. He brings to the very forefront this very philosophical, conceptual, profound insight of the so what of Christmas. You have to remember, Jerusalem has just fallen. The temple is no more. The place where Jesus did so many incredible miracles, you can't even go to him now. Is there any hope for us? And he says, in the midst of all the death that has happened, because Jerusalem, if you weren't carried away as an exile back to Rome as a prisoner, you die. In the midst of all that death, he was reminding them that Jesus was life. In the midst of all the, the racial and political factions that were tearing the city apart in the midst of that siege, he was reminding them that they had the light that was for all mankind. Not just some people, but all people. And in the midst of the darkness, the darkness of their life, the darkness of the circumstances they were walking through, and the darkness of what they were dealing with. He wanted to remind them that that darkness had been broken through by the light that he was. And then he writes this statement that I hope you catch the weight. And he said, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about 70 A.D., you read that, it's present tense. The question you're wondering, is the Roman Empire darkness overcome it? And he says, no, the darkness has not overcome it. It's what has been done cannot undo what he has done. To these people in this great struggle, he reminds them that the Christmas story was so true and so profound, not just when Jesus was in the manger, but in the aftermath when Jesus walked out of the tomb and in the aftermath of 40 years later when the city where the tomb once was is no more, that he's still in control there. These people were asking some fundamental questions. Is God still in control? Does he see me? Has the light finally been extinguished? Has darkness won? Has death finally overcome. And John, who had been the last person alive to see Jesus, wanted them to understand that the so what of Christmas is so much better than what we ever realize. 
Uh, one of the things you may not know is that Abraham Lincoln was a techie. Now, that seems like a strange thing to say because it's the 1860s, but you have to realize that the techiness of the day wasn't the iPhone, it was the telegraph. And that Abraham Lincoln uniquely understood the power of the telegraph to the point that he would sometimes go and spend all day or sleep overnight in the telegraph room, which was right across the street, right down the street from the White House. Abraham Lincoln knew that the information coming from the front lines not only allowed him to know what was happening, but he could literally speak right back to the generals and influence what was happening. He was this techie. And one of the things that Civil War operators around the Civil War telegraph operators began to understand was that when it came to telegraph, you had to make sure you led with the headline. That if you didn't lead with the headline in the midst of all the dots and the dashes, in the midst that the line could go down because some of these battle lines Um, some of the lines crossed through the battle lines that were playing out in the Civil War, that you might lose a signal. It gets cut. It gets broken. And so Civil War operators made sure they always led with the headline so that it made it through before the details did. You know, it's like when you listen to people and they tell you a story and and it's like three minutes in, you realize, holy moly, that was the most important part of the story. Like, you should have led with that, right? Like, that was the headline. It was like, how, how was how your day? It was good. I mean, I got a coffee at Dunkin's on the way to work, and then I got a free donut, and that was pretty nice. I was pretty happy. You know, then I went to work and realized my coworker died. What, what the, you know, like that was the thing you should have led with when I asked, how was your day? Right? And the Civil War operators of the Telegraph, they understood that. Lead with the headline. And I think what John understood, the reason he starts his gospel account the way he does is that in the midst of the fall of Jerusalem, in the midst of the devastation, in the midst of 500 people being crucified every single day outside of Jerusalem, that all those details could cause them to easily miss the headline that Jesus was alive and that what he has done cannot be undone. That that's the headline. The headline of Christmas is that God stepped into the broken world the broken world that was clearly on display in 70 A.D. and in the last two years that we've been walking through, that he stepped into the world to fix a world that we so obviously could never fix on our own. That the headline is that the tomb is empty, not that Jerusalem has fallen. The headline is that he is alive, even if there are so many that are dead. And that that headline is embedded in the phrase Merry Christmas. And that when you and I walk this season, this month, and we say Merry Christmas to each other, there is so much more there than we realize. And that it's easy, very tempting in our own lives to bury the headline of Christmas in the midst of all the details of what's happening, in the midst of some of the maybe financial uncertainty or health uncertainty or the fact that we keep learning Greek letters that we never intended on learning, right, and the question marks of what's that going to do to our lives. I mean, all of those details, we can unintentionally bury the headline that Jesus Christ is alive, that the grave is empty, that the power that he demonstrated that day is still the power that's present in us today for those who follow Jesus. That the hope and the life and the light that broke through the darkness, it was not overcome in 
33 AD. It was not overcome in 70 AD. It was not overcome in 2020, and it will not be overcome in 2021. That the storyline of your life is not greater than the headline over your life. That he is alive. That death has been defeated. That sin, shame, and guilt have been thrown into the grave. And that what we get to walk with is peace, joy, life, and power. That's what you mean. That's what you say when you say, Merry Christmas. That loneliness does not determine the headline of my life because I have a God who is present with me in my most lonely moments. That when I am defined by my sickness, that takes away from the headline that I've actually got a storyline of my life that no thing can rob what he has done for me. Right? There's a hope in the phrase Merry Christmas. Bigger than Omicron, bigger than any other Greek letter that might come, bigger than any political Racial tension that we're navigating as a nation greater than any election that could come, any story that could break on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or wherever you get your news from, that the greatest news that has ever been told was that good news that death had been defeated and that the grave had been robbed. That is Merry Christmas. That is Merry Christmas to you and to me. You have something that has teeth, right? You've got a story that changes the very story you're in the midst of. And to not allow in the midst of all of this that we see that sits on our little mantles and the the cards that we get in the mail with perfect-looking families that look like they have all things together where you know dang well they do not. They're crazy just like your family's crazy. Okay? The, The story is the fact that Underneath that perfect picture that was totally staged is the battle cry and the reminder that no matter how bad it is right now, the light has still overcome the darkness. And that, it's my son who loves to play with these little animals, and it's been interesting watching um, because the nativity scene has been really hopping this year. I mean, like, we've had some uh, Buzz Lightyear has come by to hang out with some Jesus, which has been pretty extraordinary. Um, we've had um, Polynesian and Hawaiian dancers who've come by. I don't even know where those things come from. Um, even funnier is the fact that he's named them. I don't know how. Um, he's named these little Polynesian chubby dancers um, after my mother and my mother-in-law. So I don't know how that happened. But he's like, oh, Nana's here or Gaga's here. And it's like, um, and then Cal swings by to say what's up. And, you know, it's just, it's just been this fun little mix. And, you know, Lion comes by, and then Buzz's spaceship lands. And watching it all play out, what he doesn't realize is that in reality, all of those things, right, like a spaceship, that, that's power. That lion, there's teeth. And I don't want us to get so wrapped up in the plasticity of what we celebrate that we miss the power of what's behind it. That Merry Christmas is a war cry to the things that wage against our life. That Merry Christmas is a reminder that your addictions is not stronger than what he has done. Merry Christmas is a reminder that your marriage is not, your marriage's struggles are not greater than the one who defeated all the other things that came against us. 
And I, I just, before we get into the next couple weeks where we get really practical, next week we're going to jump into mental and emotional health because that's an issue that Christmas speaks to, and that's something that in the last two years we've been all navigating through. Before we get into any of that practicality, I just wanted to change how we think about the word Merry Christmas and to change how we speak about the phrase Merry Christmas because that day, has the power to influence every day. And here's the one sentence I just want to give you today as we wrap up. That our hope is not in what's happening. Our hope is not in some circumstances that we, oh man, if this plays out, then this plays out, then this plays out. That the hope of Christmas is what has happened. Period. 2,000 years ago. Unchangeable. Unshakable unquestionable. That is where our hope is. And if we can reclaim that as we reclaim Merry Christmas, then I think it puts us in a unique place to have really tough conversations with ourselves and with the world around us in the midst of this series over this next month. And that ultimately is the good tidings. That's the great joy, that comfort that he brings. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for a holiday that changes how we see every day. Thank you for a power that's greater than the plastic that oftentimes represents it on the mantles in our homes. Thank you for Jesus, for the way that he has come and for what he has done that cannot be undone over our lives. Thank you for that message of hope, that what has happened is our foundation, regardless of what is happening in our lives, regardless of what, as parents, we're navigating with our kids, or what we're dealing with with our health, or our finances, or our questions about life. God, help us to lead out in this season with a recognition of the headline and not drown in the details of the storyline that we find ourselves in. Thank you for how that one moment reorients every moment in our lives today and forevermore. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today.